From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this show is brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. If you have any need for an improved internet presence or want to improve your marketing, call EPR Creations. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. Okay, welcome back, everybody. It's been uh, quite a while, almost a month. I have been working on the usual behind-the-scenes stuff at this time of year, plus a lot of a lot more behind-the-scenes stuff because trying to learn everything I can about uh, Norvell and the system he runs and Fuller and the system he runs and doing a, a ton of homework. Uh, I don't think you guys would quite believe me if I, uh, if I showed you what, uh, the, the schedule and the, uh, amount of stuff that I've been breaking down there to, to get some handle on this, because I really, uh, was not as, as we talked about, uh, as I talked on this podcast before, was not as familiar with Norvell in terms of having a really good sense of what he did myself. I could only go off of what I, uh, heard from those who'd coached against him or from other coaches within the industry. Uh, and that was all very positive as I'd relayed, but, um, but now I've, I've got a much better sense of where things are, and uh, it's about time to start getting into a little bit more podcasting. going to try to get about one a week out for a while uh, now as we get into the spring, and then we'll, we'll do a little bit more then. So one other thing, and this is a behind-the-scenes thing, you'll probably notice that there will be a little bit of uh, ad pre-roll and post-roll that will not be in, uh, in podcast ad reads as, uh, as I've done the last couple of years. Uh, just going ahead and adding a, an easier layer uh, to that. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm not a big fan of those uh, types of ads and all that uh, as a listener, but got to keep the lights on. So adding that uh, that aspect to uh, to further uh, all of this on that end, and uh, I, I may I'm, I'm thinking about trying to find a way to do an ad free podcast for those of you who are subscribers on uh, on on Patreon. Not sure exactly how difficult that might be, but. Uh, it's, that's definitely something that uh, I'm also considering. So, all right, now that that's all out of the way, let's go ahead and get to the first topic. We should probably start with the disc- a short discussion of Keith Gavin's comments. Gavin uh, went on the Ball and Life podcast, and uh, and they and had a lot to say. I'm I'm actually very surprised that Gavin, who's a who's right now, he just he had just finished the uh, East West. Shrine game, the uh, the the NFL uh, showcase for for scouts. Uh, he's trying to work his way into the possibility of making a roster in the NFL, and then goes on this podcast. and I was I was surprised by the candor, surprised by uh, how honest he was with uh, with his evaluation. They they talked to him about his disappointment about Jimbo Fisher leaving and his uh his impressions of the time under Fisher and then his thoughts on Willie Taggart and wow <laughs> he uh he was he was very complimentary of of Fisher and and of uh how Fisher pushed the team to to be better although he did say that after the loss to Alabama and early in the uh and after they lost the lost the quarterback and were down to Blackman and all that, he felt like Jimbo stepped back and wasn't as intense in practice as usual. And you could kind of look back and see that Jimbo had a foot out the door. And he also expressed some frustration that he felt like people around Florida State had kind of pushed Jimbo out and you know that that was something he he didn't he didn't like. 
But beyond that, then they they stepped and they, they stepped uh, stepped up and asked him what they thought about Willie Taggart or what he thought about Willie Taggart. And uh, like I said, his comments were much more candid than I expected. Where he he said, uh, and I'm I'm now quoting. It was nothing that I came to college for. If I was coming out of high school, then this time, man, Florida State probably wouldn't have even been an option for me. It was just, it was nothing like my first two years. All I know is work and practice hard. And we didn't really get rewarded that much, even for our hard work. Meaning, meaning in those first couple of years when, you know, he put that work in, he said, uh, once Taggart arrived back to quoting, it was like the standards and everything were gone. It was like, it was really like everyone have fun. And I didn't really come to college just to have fun. I had enough fun my freshman year in college, you know, but it's more of a business thing. I'm here to get better and win games, you know? <whistles> yeah. Well, I mean, that does match with, uh, with some of what we discussed on this podcast. Uh, and something that uh, I've said in the past that I won't, go out of my way to throw people under the bus after, after the fact, but that I did, I did say that more stuff would be coming out uh, over time about, uh, about the regime and how things had gone and why Taggart ultimately deserved to be fired and why I felt like it was fair. Florida state had given him all the opportunity that he needed. Uh, And yeah, yeah. Gavin's interview, I think is one of those things that it's, that's one of those things that, we're going to see a couple more times, I think, of players talking about that uh, that that transition and basically the idea that they didn't feel that they were pushed, especially the players who were there under Fisher. And those of you who've listened to this podcast a very long time will remember that back in 2018, one of the things that I mentioned was that even though there was a lot of talk about going fast on offense and learning to play with, play at high tempo, that they were getting a lot fewer reps in practice. And that was something that I said then that, you know, they're, they're not getting as many reps in practice. It's practices are actually moving slower. And, uh, and, and I didn't even know exactly how much slower on, on some things. I mean, because they, they went even slower initially than I thought in 2018, when I saw some stuff in 2019, it was one of those like, Oh wow, it's even, even slower than I thought. But, uh, but yeah, that is neither here nor there. The, the main thing here. I do want to explain what he meant when he went on to say that there was just too much wasted time. He said there was just a lot of wasted time out there. And really what he's getting at there is, is a big part is, is, is really the point of frustration for, for players. And I saw a number of people on social media kind of dragging Gavin for even making these comments. And yeah, I do think that it would have been smart for him not to make these comments at all. You're trying to do job interviews for the next level. You're trying to play at the next level. The last thing you want to do is is to throw somebody under the bus and do this sort of thing because you don't want to put put your put any uh, possibility in the minds of those decision makers who might be bringing you in that you'd be the kind of person to throw them under the bus if things don't go well. So that's the sort of thing that yeah, it's not the smartest thing for him to say. But again, he was honest, and this is the sort of thing that in those interviews, you know, at the NFL Combine or wherever with teams, this is the sort of stuff that he's going to say and. I saw other people that were dragging him saying, well, you know, the man, the man, he only made a couple plays in his entire time at Florida state. You know, he has no, no credibility to be, you know, making statements about how the coaches didn't do stuff. There were other, other receivers that were better than him, et cetera. This is not about how good he was or any of that. You know, one thing I, sh- I should say 
is you'll notice he said he had a lot of fun his freshman year in college, which is part of why he didn't play his first year. He came in super raw and then didn't really commit to making the development initially that he needed to. But then here's the thing. He actually developed a lot between freshman and sophomore year. I mean, that you, you could see the development. He was a dominant player against Alabama in that first game and then was actually looking really good up until he got hurt early in, 20, in the 2017 season. Then when he came back, he was not quite the same, and he never developed any further the rest of his time at Florida State. Really, the only development that he had was under Jimbo and Dossie. Now, that I'm not going to blame Ron Dugans for that. I, I don't think Dugans and, and even Kelly, I don't think they had as much flexibility to really develop their receivers as, as uh, ultimately you need to be able to develop these guys for the next level. Dugans is going to have more opportunities to develop guys in the current system. But in any case, how, how, how good he was, how much he developed and all of that, that's, that's really a non-issue. And you got guys saying, well, you know, man, if you, if you felt like guys weren't working hard, you could have gone out there and, you know, worked hard yourself. Well, here's the thing, what he's really getting at in terms of the wasted time, that's not really true. And so this is why it's important that people actually understand the difference here. So when Jimbo Fisher was, was, was head coach at Florida State, what they did is they divided up practice the the normal everyday practice was divided up such that the ones and threes were on one field going through their reps while the twos and fours were on another field doing their reps, each doing the exact same practice script. What that means is that you're getting double the number of reps that you would if you were just all on one field. So if you had all the offense on one field going through, then just dividing up ones and threes so that the ones do their rep and then the threes do their rep immediately after and then the ones go back and do their rep. Or if you're doing some tempo type stuff, which they did, you go ones, 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 three, 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 and you're rotating really quickly so that you're maximizing the number of reps. And the other field's doing exactly the same thing. So... Your starters are getting double the number of reps. Your threes are getting more than double because the twos would be taking the majority of the reps after the starters and the threes and fours would barely be getting any reps at all. But once you divide things up so the twos and fours are together, th ones and threes are together, and that's for both offense and defense and they're, they're, they've got their own, their own set, uh, place on the field to do that stuff, that basically means that you're, you're doubling at minimum the number of reps that you're going to get per practice. Jimbo was obsessed with squeezing every bit of, of, of efficiency out of practice because you only get these guys for 20 hours, including meeting time. So if you're going to do that, you'd better make sure that every rep counts and that they get as many reps as possible in practice. Now, the thing is, because you're rotating more quickly there too, you're all, some of those players are probably getting three and four times as many reps as they would in your standard one through four all on the same field. So that's a lot of, you add that up over the year and you're looking at thousands of more uh, of additional reps over the course of a year. I mean, that's another year's worth of development in a year compared to what you're getting in doing things the way that Tiger did. them. That's at least, so you, you go from freshman to sophomore and that's like going from freshman to junior year or even more in terms of number of practice reps. So, if you're, if you're a guy like Gavin, or if you're one of the guys in those practices and you say, well, it's your responsibility to, you know, to make yourself better. 
you can't get reps that aren't there. You can't make everybody else go faster so that you can get more reps. So he's right about this in terms of wasted time. And beyond that, it's even worse. There were times where Taggart would spend 25 minutes of practice doing the, the, the null drill or the, you know, basically his glorified version of the Oklahoma drill. And the way that they would set that up, at most you'd have two of those going at once. And it's really back to back. And basically that's going to mean you're going to have six guys at maximum that are, that are active at one time. And then the rest of the team. So that's, you know, let's say you've got two sets of, of six. That's 12 guys. The rest of the team is 90 guys. Really, nine, 110 if you start to, if you start to count uh, walk-ons. But you're looking at, just at, if we're just limiting to scholarship guys, if we're, if we're pretending the walk-ons don't participate in that at all, then you've got 25 minutes of practice in which basically 70 of your scholarship athletes are doing nothing but cheering instead of getting rep repetitions where you're getting better. That's basically what Keith Gavin's talking about. That's why they didn't get as many reps. That's why practice went, went slower. And that's ultimately why, you know, some of us were pretty pessimistic about some of these things uh, pretty early on. And, uh, and, you know, it was, it was discouraging. Now this is where Norvell's system and Norvell's way of running practices, that's going to change things because he's going to come in and he's going to be much more, much closer to what Fisher did in terms of pushing for efficiency, pushing for more reps, pushing for, if you don't do it right, you're going to have to do it again immediately. Go back to the front and do it, do it again, do it over again until you get it perfect. That's what you're going to expect. So, and, and that's actually what you're going to, and the intensity level is going to get turned up just by the nature of turning up the number of reps and turning up the expectation of, well, it wasn't good enough to run it that way. No, go come back and do it again and do it right. Do it again, do it right. Which is, you know, the way Florida state always did things before. I mean, the do it again thing, finish the drill that, that goes all the way back to the Bowden era. I, I, I can attest to that for sure. So. So yeah, there's uh, there's a lot going on there, and worth mentioning. Like I said, a little bit surprised by how how by 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 Gavin's candor, but I don't think that anybody should should diminish what he had to say. I mean, if anything, that's a guy that actually worked worked hard at Florida State. That's a guy who, yeah, he dropped a lot of balls. Yeah, he didn't make the plays, the big plays that you you really would have hoped for him to make by the time he was a senior, especially. But that's also a guy who blocked his tail off, and that's a guy who did the little things to try to be better, but didn't get the support to, to develop that he expected when he signed at Florida State. So this is something that I, I do think we can expect better development out of this staff. Uh, and I'm really encouraged by what I've seen in terms of my own studying of what they're going to do. Now, before I move on, I do want to thank my second sponsor, and that is Louis Marquez, as always, of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. Louis is not just a realtor. He's a trained photographer and videographer. If you're going to sell your house in the greater Jacksonville area and you don't sell it with Louis... You're an idiot. <laughs> Give Lewis a call or email him. Both of those, that in, all that information is in the show notes. Mention you heard about him through this podcast and he'll take extra good care of you. And if you're looking to buy a home in the greater Jacksonville area, he's the best in the business. He'll make sure that he finds you exactly the right home you, you, you want and he'll get you the best deal that you need. Let Lewis know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast. And then let me know 
about your experience working with the best realtor in Jacksonville. All right, so next thing I want to talk about is actually some of the disciplinary stuff that came out that there was some discussion uh, of, an, of, of a former Memphis player who was talking about some of the rules that, uh, that Norvell has for his football team. Uh, that you know, you, there's no hats, no, no, uh, no hoods over your head when you're in the building, no headphones in, no, earpod, no earbuds or AirPods in, none of that stuff in the building, and then no earrings in the building. When you come to the building, you take your earring out and all of that. And, uh, and, you know, he talked about how he felt like that was, that was actually a positive at Memphis and that, uh, that, you know, it helped, uh, the team understand that they were there to work and all of that. And I saw uh, some mixed, mixed discussion to this online. You know, I, I saw some, some folks on Twitter, uh, the first day that that came out, I made a couple comments about that. And I saw some people saying, well, you know, I get the no headphones and, you know, some of this stuff, but, Man, some of this stuff just that just seems that just seems nitpicky. Like, why why make guys take their earrings out? Like, I, I don't I ain't seeing that. Like, that just seems really arbitrary. And then others, you know, kind of pointing that this kind of seems uh, a little bit either racial or you know, there's a cultural side to this that you know that that he's he's hitting at, and you know th- that maybe that's a step further than than you need to go. And I tell you what, I, I really disagree. Um, I, I, I like these rules and I like them a lot more than I would have liked them 15 years ago. And I want to get a little into why in this podcast and, and why, if I were a head coach, I would have similar rules. I'd actually probably have a, a couple extras. And a lot of it comes back to, well, first of all, some experience as a coach now uh, over the years. And then second of all, the teaching and research that I've done in the field of sociology, which actually is really relevant to a lot of this and, uh, and, and has a lot to say there. I've, I've, I've changed my opinion on a lot of these kind of arbitrary rules over the years. Cause when I was much younger, I, I really was one of those people who resented the small rules, the, the stuff that, you know, it just seems so stupid. Like why, why, why even care about this? Like, why does it matter if I wear my hat in the building? Why does it matter? You know, it's not going to make me any better of a person. It's just virtue signaling or whatever else. And to some degree, that's right. And to some degree, I still agree with my younger self here, but here's the thing that over time I've, I've, I've learned and Actually, there's there's some really good resources on this on the sociological side. Uh, some of it is from Rodney Stark and Larry Yannacone and uh, and that whole group, and others from Mary Douglas, an anthropologist. But basically, what we've learned over the years, there's been a lot of research on this. But there are certain ca- certain uh, characteristics of strong groups of groups that are able to survive more outside opposition that are, that have longer, uh, longer shelf life that grow over time, et cetera, that can make bigger demands on their, on their, uh, on their members and so on. And it turns out that certain certain aspects of this are a little bit surprising. They're paradoxical. I mean, you would think that if you wanted to build a group that was going to grow, Let's say you were going to invent you were going to invent a religion and you wanted that religion to to wind up having a strong group and and to be popular and to grow. You'd think like, oh, you know, let's 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 make sure that we're not requiring, you know, the stupid stuff. We're going to rule out all the stuff that, you know, obviously people are going to walk in and be like, "Well, that's dumb." Well, that actually is going to make you less likely in the long term to 
keep members in certain in in certain ways. So Mary Douglas, <laughs> I know this is a, a strange thing to get in the middle of a football podcast, but Mary Douglas actually talked about this with respect to certain things like with Catholicism. That back in the day, and you still have this with devout Catholics today, but this expectation that if you're Catholic, you do not eat meat on Fridays, for example, Uh, or things like if you're if you're Jewish, you don't eat pork. I mean, bacon may smell great, but you're not eating it. It doesn't matter that it's just an arbitrary rule that it's not going to hurt you. It's that that's the that's just what we do. We don't do that. That's just who we are. And. Actually, it's turned out that the research continues to show that when you abandon those arbitrary rules that are there just to serve as a boundary in many cases between what we do and what they do, these arbitrary rules actually serve, first of all, to keep to make it difficult enough to be in the group that group members actually have to think about being a member of the group and have to feel invested in being a member of the group. And because of that sense of investing in the group, then there's sort of cognitive dissonance that's on your side. It must be worth being a part of this group. So then you actually paradoxically become someone who's more likely to want to be in the group. And so it actually reinforces the group strength. The same thing, it's the same effect with things like initiation rituals and, you know, hazing and all that, which is supposed to never happen and all that anymore. But there's a reason that you have initiation rituals and hazing and boot camp in the military and all of these things. The reason for these things is you want to put cost up front so that, first of all, people feel invested and they feel like they're part of a group that's not the same as everybody else outside. Our group, we do things differently. So that automatically sets a boundary. Secondly, it levels the, the, the playing field. When you, I don't care if you're going to be a desk jockey and you've got a PhD, if you, if, you, if you join the military, you may have higher rank, but you're still going to have to go through boot and you're going to get yelled at by a guy with bad breath. Why? Well, because that is, that, that's, that's just part of establishing that you're a part of this group that is bigger than you, that has a better, a bigger purpose than you, and that you have a specific place in the pecking order, and it's not on top. That you have certain things that you have to give up to be a part of this group, and that it's a privilege to be a part of this group, and that you have to work to be a part of this group. And if you're going through all of this to be here, it must be worth it, psychologically. And then thirdly, it serves as a way to make sure that there's no free riders, If you're going to be here, you're going to have to sacrifice a little bit to be here. So, you know, otherwise you can just be along for the ride. But even if there's just that one little thing that's just a little inconvenient that has to make you think about it, then that actually has a way of, again, a lot of it's psychological, some of it's other, some of it's just the economics of it, but this prevents it helps prevent that free rider problem where you have somebody that joins the group, not to really put in the work to, you know, benefit the group, but to get the benefits of being in the group. And it's the arbitrary rules. And actually it turns out that it's the more arbitrary rules in some cases, or the rules that seem most arbitrary that actually have the strongest function in terms of benefiting the group. So I I just think back to, my time back at, at Florida State, the couple of years that I was around, and I look at this and I go, wait a second, Coach Bowden was smart about this. Because when you, when, you, when you got there, when you were a freshman, you got your, you got your head shaved. 
If you if if your head wasn't shaved, they took your eyebrows, and sometimes they do some funky stuff to your head. You know, you're gonna shave everything but the very front front piece of your head, so it's gonna hang down and make you look ridiculous. You know that sort of thing. Then there's no facial hair. You had to be if you had facial hair coming in, they had razors in there where you had to walk in and you had to shave that off. And one of the coaches, when when he would see you walking in and you you had a little bit of stubble or something, you had to go over, you would not be permitted to, to walk into that locker room until you'd gone over to the bathroom where they had that razor and you'd shave that off. And then you could come in once you were fully groomed. And I thought at the time that was kind of dumb. It didn't matter to me because I could barely grow, <laughs> grow any facial hair anyway, but I thought it was kind of dumb at the time, but you know what? It mattered. And they made a couple exceptions and eventually abandoned it early in my career there. Or actually t- the tail end of my career, but I, w- I wasn't, my career was so short that it, it didn't matter. But they, they made some exceptions because ultimately some of the newer big recruits really didn't want that. And so they, they made some promises and ultimately that those, those rules died. And actually that kind of coincides with when things didn't, things weren't going well. Now, I don't think that's why things got worse, but I don't think it's totally coincidental either. So to me, this is really smart. Now, on the flip side, these arbitrary rules and the the, the costs, the extra costs, the barriers that you have to put up to be a part of our group, that stuff only works if people feel like they're getting something in return from the group. If you're making things arbitrary and you're just constantly making it hard to be a part of the group and then you don't feel like you're getting anything out of it, then eventually that's going to turn and you're going to get a a mass exodus. Everything's going to turn at once. So this is the sort of thing that's, that's good and it really works and it reinforces everything if players start feeling like it's leading to wins. But it's the sort of thing that if you're not winning, eventually that culture backfires even more. So that's the, that's the thing you have to be, you have to get guys where they start to notice that they're getting better. You have to start noticing that this is paying off, that the investment's paying off. But if it starts to pay off the buy-in, it reinforces that buy-in. It makes things that much stronger. So to me, this is the sort of thing that if I were in Norvell's position, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. I'd probably have a couple additional rules because I'd want people to understand that this is that there that there is a clear hierarchy here. I'd want people to understand that we are a group that this is not a uh, this is not just a group of individuals, but we are a team that is oriented towards the same thing and I don't, I don't want anybody you know, oh, you got big diamonds in and now you're you're better than some no, you you are not an individual here. You're a part of the team. You're not wearing a mask on the sideline after a touchdown. No, you you are a part of this team. And I, I did hear from someone who's uh, who who talked to to Norvell about this in December that the celebrations and all of that 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 stuff's that stuff's going to be uh, curtailed pretty quickly too. But it's the same thing. Like you're emphasizing that that we are uniform because it's the military concept, and a lot of them, you know, you get a lot of military type stuff in 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 college football for a good reason because it, it's the sort of thing that in terms of the psychology of large groups and groups that are going to be really physical. It, it works, but again, it only works if you're starting to win the win football games. But once you start winning, guys really buy in, and then your your culture takes care of itself because that's the sort of thing that guys can self police and got and and guys are reminded of. It it helps sustain that culture. So to me, that's really smart. 
Okay, before the third segment here, I'm going to thank my third sponsor, and that is Garage Makeovers. They're the top-rated garage remodeling company in South Florida. Licensed and insured have been serving all of Palm Beach and Broward County since 2005. If you need any work done in your garage and you live in Palm Beach or Broward County, give them a holler. Information's in the show notes. Let them know you heard about it from the Unconquered podcast. All right, a couple other, a couple other things, and then uh, I'll do a few question and answer. I've got so many Q&As here that I'll probably leave off some to, uh, to the next episode. But, uh, but yeah, uh, a few other things. Uh, number one is uh, there's also been another coaching change, <laughs> TJ Rushing. We hardly knew ye. He uh, got poached by one Jimbo Fisher to go out to Texas A&M. So Rushing... Never coached a game at Florida State. Was just there long enough to uh, to do a couple recruiting visits, and then moved on to greener pastures, as it were, at uh, at Texas A and M. And of course, you wonder, like, why make that move? Why why do this? What, was there something else involved? Well, a couple things. Number one is Jimbo was willing to pay an extra premium here because ultimately he wanted a guy who was from the same tree as his current defensive coordinator, Mike Elko. And Mike Elko and Fuller, the uh, defensive coordinator at Florida State, Fuller is a is an Elko tree guy, which is why Norvell wanted rushing in Tallahassee to begin with. He was fo- he came he was a guy that was that had coached with uh, with uh, Fuller at Mar- at Memphis last year, and he's a guy that was he understood he was already involved in what they do defensively. No learning curve, no nothing really easy chemistry decision. You just do it. There you go. And now Jimbo wants somebody from that Elko tree that Elko trusts. And there you go. So that makes sense. That's why Norvell made the hire. That's why Jimbo went after him. And it's easy for rushing to make a decision of, look, if I'm going to get paid double, I'm going to take the other job easy. And he wants to move up. I mean, he wants to be a coordinator. He wants to move up. And so getting paid double, moving up and being under Elko gives you some opportunities there. Thing is, in all honesty, I actually think they may have upgraded in terms of overall coaching by the, by the, uh, the substitution here. Because Woodson is, <laughs> Marcus Woodson is a really good coach and he's, he's a more charismatic guy. He's much more dynamic in terms of a, in terms of the pers- personality that he's going to bring to the picture, he's also a guy that, again, he's not from the Elko tree. He's not. He's not a guy that coached with Fuller at Memphis before. He's actually the guy. He was actually at Memphis the year before Fuller arrived with the current defensive coordinator at the University of Georgia. Now, I actually like that better because he's bringing another another voice from outside the the normal system. He's going to learn the system well, but he's bringing another voice. So that's one more, uh, one more set of eyes. that's from a different perspective. That's going to be a strong voice in the defensive meeting room. And he's also, he was a recruiting coordinator at Auburn. And a lot of you understand that that comes with a lot of responsibility and, uh, a lot of understanding of how the game works in recruiting. And this is a guy that can really recruit. And he's also a guy that if you watch Auburn's defensive backs, I was impressed by what Auburn, I mean, they beat Alabama this year and you saw Alabama's receivers. Now Alabama's receivers eight. Yes, but not like they did against everybody else. 
He's going to have his defensive backs playing aggressive. He's going to have his defensive backs playing with good technique. And again, he's a strong motivator and outstanding recruiter who understands how that all works and with, with uh, roots in the Gulf Coast area and Louisiana as well. So I think this is a very strong hire. It moves my defensive staff grade up. I had, I had the defensive staff graded as a B on the last podcast. I would move them up to a B plus now with Woodson at the, uh, with Marcus Woodson as the uh, defensive backs coach, uh, defensive passing game coordinator or pass defense coordinator. That to me bumps them up to a, to a B plus in terms of my initial grade for what the defensive staff as a whole looks like. I'm I'm actually really excited about that hire. I think it, I think it ultimately ends up turning out better than than I expected. And a reminder, I have that uh, offensive coaching staff at between an A minus and an A. I think this is a really really good offensive staff, and uh, and and there's a lot to be excited about there. And I've spent a lot of time, as I mentioned at the beginning of the of the podcast episode, I've spent a lot of time going through learning, and you know, sort of reverse engineering. <laughs> Uh, Norvell's offense and and going through as much as I can from, from prior games, from prior stops, and figuring out exactly how, how all this works and comparing it. I mean, I've got an old uh, Gus Malzahn playbook from back in the uh, in the Tulsa days, back when uh, actually Norvell was under Malzahn, and there's a ton of Malzahn influence, but he's also really developed a lot a lot of things that I'm 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 excited to see. Uh, it's pretty obvious that he learned a lot from the Rams, that uh, that he spent some time studying what they do, what McVay does with the Rams, in particular some of the downfield passing stuff. Uh, and then there's a lot of commonality with what uh, with what they're doing at Oklahoma. So Lincoln Riley's offense, both in the running game and in the play action passing game, and some of the RP, RPO stuff, there's a ton of similarity with with what between what Lincoln Riley's doing and what Norvell's doing. And I'm, I, I haven't gone to verify this in terms of being able to check when he did it, but I would, I would bet a lot of money that Norvell spent some time with Riley learning and going through some of the key stuff. I mean, there's a couple of downfield things that are very clearly from the, uh, from the, from the Oklahoma side and some really, you know, sexy stuff, some nice wrinkles that are added in. So it's very clearly a Malzahn foundation and then built on with some NFL stuff, added in with some air raid stuff. So they've got a full air raid package. Uh, you know, some of the base pass stuff that they do is air raid stuff. And then some shots that are straight up out of the McVeigh and uh, Lincoln Riley tree it's a really good offense. And this is where, uh, you know, I've been pulling some clips and that sort of thing out of some of the, uh, the, uh, film that I've horse traded for so that I can make some short videos explaining exactly how all this works, uh, on Patreon. I know that's been a long time coming. I know some of you've been waiting for it. Sorry for any delay there, but doing the best I can to produce a, a good product there. But I tell you what, this, this, there's a lot to be excited about there. There's a lot of depth to what they're doing offensively. Uh, I think, and again, reverse engineering this, they've done a really good job of simplifying how this is all going to work for the quarterback. Uh, and the other thing is, it's a very flexible system. There's a lot of similarities in terms of flexibility and in terms of some of the, some of the core concepts in the running game to what Jimbo Fisher does. 
it's much closer to what Fisher does in terms of being a super flexible and diverse offense than what we saw with Willie Taggart and also with what we saw with Bryles. It's much more flexible, much more, uh, much, uh, there's much more breadth than what you, what you're going to get under, uh, in those two offenses and much more like what you're going to get with Fisher, but a few differences. One is that, uh, Norvell's base pass concepts are more aggressive than Fisher's base pass concepts. Fisher's base pass concept, his bread and butter year in year out is going to be Houston. They taught it really well. And it's just something that they're going to do. So you're going to have a curl, you're going to have a post and you're going to have an option route among, and then you're going to have some other, you know, some other stuff with the other two that depending on what the, what the, uh, what the formation is and and some other things, what that's going to be. Norvell's base is four verts. That's four vertical routes. That is his bread and butter play. If you're going to ask him what, what's the one pass play that you're going to hang your hat on, Dollars to donuts, he's going to say four, four verts. And you can tell by the way they coach it that, they, that they're not just telling guys to run downfield and try to get over the top. They're going to run a lot of back shoulder. They're going to run a lot of comebacks out of that. If you're going to try to play over the top on that, they're just going to take you, they're just going to take you deep and then throw to the back shoulder or throw the comeback or throw in the seam. And it's, you know, it's very effective and it's going to challenge you defensively to really handle those seams. And the, the thing is, as a defensive coordinator, the one thing that most defensive coordinators are most afraid of offensively, and the thing that every defensive secondary uh, lesson begins with is, okay, how do we handle four verts from this? Because that's the one thing everybody's always afraid of. So it makes sense to make that your base stuff. A few other coaches do make that their base. Number one, Lincoln Riley. Number two, Mike Leach. Leach's other base is, is mesh. Uh, but Lincoln Riley's going to run the heck out of four verts. He's also going to run a lot of mesh and a lot of snag. But four verts is going to be core. Another that's going to be really big for for uh, for Norvell, the, the, a lot of the big plays that you're going to see are going to be on a post-climb combination or a post-cross-country uh, route or a post-over, depending on what your terminology is, uh, where you're going to have guy from one side of the formation, he's going to run a deep, like 20 yard across the field route where you, you know, basically if it's going to be completed, there's a couple windows. It could be completed kind of like a dig in the middle of the field, or more likely it's completed on the opposite hash at about 20 yards up the field. And on the opposite side of that, you're going to have a home run, a deep post, big boy post. And that post is going to come open because you're going to see safeties come down on that cross-country route that they're going to hit over and over and over again. And then you start coming down on that cross-country route, that over route, and all of a sudden throw over the top and there's your score. So he's going to, one of the things you're going to see from, from, uh, from Norvell is he's going to challenge you to, to be able to cover his guys down the field. It's, it's a much more vertical oriented offense than what Fisher's offense overall was. The other thing is that the other difference overall from what Fisher Fisher had, uh, there, there are two other big ones that I've noticed is one, uh, I think Norvell has a stronger sense of identity. Fisher was flexible to a fault. He's a counterpuncher. And so basically, depending on what on his personnel at quarterback and elsewhere, and then what he's facing defensively, you could get a completely different offense from Fisher in one year or in one game than you might get in another game. Norvell has a core that is, that's, that's who he is. 
I mean, he's going to be inside zone. He's going to run some some gap stuff off of that. And there's a lot of variation in the running game, but he's run first in terms of how he's going to do this. And he's going to find ways to run the football with some creative, you know, if, if you're going to get, if you're going to be a little better than him up front, he's going to find some ways to go unbalanced. He's going to find some ways to window dress his favorite run concepts, but he, he's going to keep going back to that and always have an option, a pass option off of every play. That's another thing that, that you notice when you look at the film, they don't run a run play that doesn't have a pass option off of it. So that if you load the box, they're going to take the freebie. And that's similar to Fisher, but it's, it's, I think it's a little simpler. And from what I can tell, it's a little simpler in terms of how they built it in. And then the third thing is, uh, uh, in terms of just building off of the Malzahn foundation, there's the, the verbiage in the Malzahn foundation is, is friendlier. It's built to be up tempo. Uh, it's built to be up tempo first and you can always slow it down. Whereas Fisher is, you know, your typical Earhart Perkins, uh, structure, play calling structure. So it's a little, you have to find what you have to actually add stuff in and, and basically work to add wrinkles to, to speed up. But Norvell, the idea is to, to, to start with the, with the idea that you're going to go fast and then go about medium speed most of the time. And then if you, if you see that you have an advantage or if there's some other reason, then you go fast, but you're, you can easily go fast because of the way that they call plays. You know, they use the boards and you know, the, the, the terminology, the structure of how they call the plays again, coming from the malls on tree is going to be a little bit, a little bit easier there. So those are your basic differences. I'm very excited about this. I think it, I think it's one of the five or six best I, Florida state probably got one of the five or six best offensive head coaches in the country. Uh, he's, he's right there in my view with, uh, Jeff Brom with Lincoln Riley and with some of these other offensive head coaches. And, and I mean, I'm not saying that lightly looking at studying what I've studied. I think this guy is the truth when it comes to being able to run an offensive system. And, you know, I've studied a lot of it over the last three, four weeks, and I'm really pleased with what I've seen now defensively. I've not quite spent as much time with Fuller's stuff as I have with Norvell's stuff. It's a little easier to get excited about Norvell's stuff. I am pleased with what I see from, from Fuller. And so from what I, what I can see there, it's mostly, it's going to be a cover seven base. Uh, cover seven is Nick Saban terminology for a specific version of quarters where you're going to go, it's going to be a, a sort of match read quarters. Uh, so you're, you're going to show, show a two safety shell, and then you're going to read on one side, match on the other, depending on which side is field and which side's boundary. You're always trying to get an extra add in, against the run. So it's, it's designed to limit the run. You're always going to have a press corner on the boundary side and you're, you're basically, it's an aggressive downhill defense, but unlike what they had in 2018, where uh, they were running a quarters based system that was also derived a similar way, although their terminology was different. Unlike that Fuller's system is a good bit more diverse in terms of the sorts of things that he's going to try to do after the snap. So instead of just showing the cover cover seven look and then playing cover seven the whole game, they're going to show cover seven, let's say 70%, 80% of the game. And then out of that cover seven look, they're going to do a lot. But their thing is, you know, what you see pre-snap is, is not going to be what you're going to get post-snap about half the time. So quarterbacks are going to have to do a lot of post snap reads and all of their, all of their keys, all of their reads 
are going to be post-snap. Now, there are some blitzes that you can see that sometimes guys will walk up or do different things. Sometimes you can see that, 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 they're, that they're tipping and all that, but then sometimes they'll back out of that. So there's a lot of disguise. There's a lot of uh, variety that they're using defensively around a pretty simple, simple shell of what they're doing up front. They're going to try to get downhill. They're going to try to get to the quarterback. They're going to try to get in the backfield. It's more traditional Florida State one-gap football in that regard. Uh, but again, there's some variety there. So it's, 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 uh, it's not as simple as what Florida State has been running the last couple of years. And uh, there's, there's, there's a good bit of uh, sophistication that's built in. So I do, ex- I do expect that Fuller will be a nice upgrade there. Uh, I'm not as bullish overall on what they do defensively or, or, or how they've done it. I do think that Woodson uh, adds some, some extra clout there. I think that we're going to see a noticeable difference in quality of defense in year one, though. I do think that, that, that it's going to be a lot better uh, and that you're going to see overall so, some nice improvement there. Uh, and that one of the, one of the better things is that they, 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 you could see at Memphis, they did a good job of communicating and not giving up a ton of plays. There were a couple games like the Houston game. They gave up some early plays, but for the most part, they didn't bust a bunch when they got beat, they got beat. And and that's something that if Florida state can just not bust, then with the players they're going to have on the field, that that's, that's half the battle. So overall, pretty pleased there. Now, I'm I'm 45 minutes in and I haven't even gotten to the questions yet. I'm going to wait on the questions. I've got a ton of things to uh, to talk about. I mean, talk about the tour of duty stuff. I've heard a little bit about uh, how that that has gone and a couple of comments uh, from from the coaches in terms of what they feel like they've got personnel wise as they've been making their evaluations. So uh, yeah, a lot a lot more to talk about. Do I'll do one of these uh, probably Tuesday and uh, address some of those. Uh, if you have any additional questions. Uh, if you're, if you're uh, one of those listeners out there who wants to add your questions, the Q and a for Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday area, uh, go ahead and send those in. I will always check uh, Patreon first. So go ahead and put your questions in there. If you've got any questions, if you want, got anything uh, you want to uh, want me to talk about, but there's your update after three weeks off after three weeks between uh, podcasts. As always, before we get out of here, I want to thank those sponsors over at Patreon, above the bleach numbers level. That is Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. And of course, make sure to catch our next podcast, which will take care of some of those question and answers, talk a little bit about tour of duty and uh, some of the uh, personnel stuff. I'm Jason Staples. This has been the Unconquered Podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams in Jacksonville and Garage Makeovers. Thanks for listening. I made this.